Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dalzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. You may know Francis Ford Coppola for the critically acclaimed Godfather franchise, but Coppola directed many other movies, including our topic today. Released two years after the Watergate break-in and amid the ruins of the Vietnam War, the conversation tells a story of a man caught between his own technological power and the nightmares of his personal responsibility. Joining us today to discuss the intricacies of surveillance is Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, Julian Sanchez. Thanks. Speaker and author for over 28 years, Richard Thiem. Thank you. And Senior Counsel of the Constitution Project at the Project on Government Oversight, Jake LaPeruc. Hi, everyone. Director Francis Ford Coppola has said before that the practice of confession is one of the earliest forms of the invasion of privacy, the earliest forms of surveillance, which is obviously central to both the plot and overarching themes of this movie. Does surveillance make us feel godlike? And how does Gene Hackman's character call square his sort of Catholic guilt with this business practice that he's involved in? I mean, I think so first, just by way of background, I mean, I've, I've, I've suggested in, in some uh, talks I've given that, that in a way, um, one function of religion, right, is, is to sort of substitute for inadequate surveillance technology. That is to say, if you've, you know, you've uh, got an emerging civilization, you want people to be generally pretty well behaved and not, uh, uh, not cheat each other or kill each other and, and, uh, 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 so that you can get some kind of social cooperation going, uh, you know, in the modern era, to some extent, we have police and we have ways of monitoring people and you can, you can threaten people with, uh, legal penalties, uh, if they violate social norms. Uh, but in a, a sort of pre-surveillance era, um, one way to sort of save money on a surveillance state, um, is, well, can you at least convince people? Um, that they're under observation and that they'd better, uh, uh, damn well behave. Um, so in a sense, uh, um, and this is, you know, I, I say this not to, you know, uh, disparage religion or, or say, well, it's not true, but one of the social functions, um, that it serves is analogous to, uh, that of actual surveillance. That's the, 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 the thing about surveillance that, uh, Jeremy Bentham understood when he, uh, uh, developed his idea of the panopticon. There's a prison where uh, inmates would have to always behave as though they were potentially under surveillance because they couldn't see uh, who the observers in the central tower were looking at. They would always have to behave as though they were under surveillance. And so um, so it serves that kind of function of trying to, to, to regulate people and get them to behave in conformity with norms. And Coppola sets this up in the absolute first shot of the movie, uh, which is we are... Um, Looking at a, a public square, uh, with some jazz music playing, a big crowd at lunchtime milling around. Uh, and it is very much a God's eye view, uh, zooming down from above. Um, but as we sort of zoom down and pan across the crowd and try to sort of wonder what and who we're supposed to be looking at, um, we start getting these kind of digital audio artifacts in the music. And so it becomes clear that what we thought was the God's eye view is the, surveillers eye view and it's not literally we're not seeing things from the vantage of uh, any of harry call's team who are actually doing surveillance on the square um but we sort of injected the the technological artifact um, which of course is already there right we're seeing things through a camera um but we sort of suspend that as film viewers uh but then he the the, the audio artifacting we hear the distortion of the music reintroduces that and says no, no no you're you are witnessing and hearing this scene through technologies of observation so um what had seemed like this kind of uh deity view the omniscient viewer view um is is a mediated view um is uh is a a, a kind of technological voyeurism uh, i'll i'll jump into that um because I, I wasn't going to mention, but I have to because you lead with confession and priest and religion, uh, that I was an Episcopal clergyman for 16 years before uh, speaking and writing full time for the last 28. And there is a, a collect or a prayer, which is often said at the beginning of the service, which says, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. So what it does is inculcate in the herd, and it is sheep like when you are in a mass. Uh, in a trance, in a religious trance, which is what rite and ritual is designed and music, uh, 
uh, to, to do, uh, whether rightly or wrongly. Uh, you come to believe that there is nothing inside you that is not exposed. Uh, and if you believe that, then you act as Harry Call uh, ultimately did in the confession. He, he had to realign himself with somehow that belief, which he must have had inculcated into him in Catholic churches, uh, that he was known. And that what he had done, which uh, plagued his guilt, uh, kind of the way it reminded me of Jake Giddis in Chinatown. There are a number of parallels, and, and Jake Giddis uh, didn't want to cause harm to uh, someone again, as he had done once and felt guilty about having done, and screwed up so much that he caused ultimate harm to the woman he wanted to protect. And, and Harry Call, just like Jake Giddis, but doesn't understand what he's hearing. Jake Giddis didn't understand what he was saying. It was right in front of their faces. But their, I guess their paradigm or belief system prevented them from knowing what was up. And you refer to the uh, panopticon, uh, which has almost been superseded by the panspectron, which is that a single click links everything that is already databased about you. Uh, and, and then uh, if you become a target, or someone wants to know who you are or what you have done uh, and just about everything about you, it's, it's just a, a click. And th this has been uh, true for a long time. So now one of the status symbols I hear from uh, security people is, do you think you're a target? Uh, because to be worthy of someone caring about what you do uh, is, uh, is considered a, uh, a, a good thing. Let me just say one more thing and then I'll, I'll hand it off. I, I have worked with security and intelligence people for many years. And I was once talking with a senior security uh, person at uh, the NSA, uh, with which I was most closely aligned, and uh, describing what you did in ministry. And I said, what you do is learn to use a persona to present a facade which invites relationship so that there's a transfer of energy and information and relationship between the two of you. And in the ministry, what you ultimately are trying to do is use that relationship to enhance the freedom, autonomy, uh, and clarity of the purpose, person you're serving. And my friend said, in the intelligence community, we do exactly the same thing, but we do it to control you. And uh, that's it. The te technique is identical because it's by, based on relationship and creating a bridge to other people so that... Uh, they will give you access to their secrets. Uh, and you learn to manipulate that relationship in order to derive those secrets. And absolutely, in the clergy, uh, it is a position of power. There's no, no question of that. It's, it's, it's definitely a position of power. And, and so, you know, you, you, you go all the way back to, uh, I guess, 17th century France when people were required by law to carry a lantern because crime happened in the dark. And you didn't uh, carry a lantern in order to see where you were going, although it helped. It was so that you could not be anonymous. Uh, you had to be identifiable in the dark spaces of the public square. And that's exactly at, a, at an nth degree level what the internet and other digital technologies and network technologies have created. Uh, we have all kinds of markers identifying who we are. And uh, many years ago, someone at the FBI said to me, you can have one big brother or a lot of little brothers. So choose wisely. And then when I saw him many years later, he said, well, I was wrong. We have both. <laughs> uh, we, we have big brother and we have Google and we have Apple and we have uh, Tencent and, and we have et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and if you've looked at the book recently, we have been harmonized about how the Chinese are uh, taking this level of surveillance and control uh, to its ultimate uh, extreme. Uh, what you see are things that are already being implemented here. Uh, so Harry, Harry Call, uh, there's none of us in the in that business. And I've, I've spoken at DEF CON. I'll, I'll be going back in August for the 25th straight year. Uh, that's some some kind of record. For the listeners who aren't familiar, DEF CON is, is probably the, the major annual hacker conference. That's right. And there, there were 300 the first time I spoke, and there were 30,000 last year. Uh, and there's no, nobody in that space who does not understand the rush, the power rush, as intelligence people do. There is no high higher than having secrets. 
the secrecy and being part of the elite that has those secrets. So you can get at them officially, as we have since 1947 with the building, building of the national security state, uh, or you can get them the way Harry Call uh, did as a cautionary tale. So you mentioned this like notion of control and I had, I had written this down before our recording, but like the role that control plays throughout this film is super, is really interesting because there's like the notion of having control and wanting control and also like falling under the illusion that you are in control um, are all like big factors throughout this movie. So I was kind of hoping we could like break down for the audience, like, how Harry Call experiences all of all of these phases, let's call it phases of control throughout the movie. To me, this is kind of the most interesting facet of the movie, I think, which is just kind of the, I would call it kind of the hypocrisy of his character. I mean, when you look at this guy, he is, you know, as Harrison forces were talking, like he is a wiretapper. That is his job. He illegally goes and records people's intimate lives in a way that, you know, I think at this point is breaking the law and is certainly breaking pretty basic moral ethics. So you kind of have to ask is, well, is this like an amoral guy who just, you know, wants his paycheck, doesn't care if what he's doing is ethical or not? Like, no, he, he has these seemingly deep religious convictions. He spends most of the movie kind of grappling with, you know, the harms of what he's doing, not necessarily the privacy harms, but kind of, oh, well, I would be responsible if handing over these tapes leads to someone being physically harmed. So he clearly, you know, thinks that it is on him if there's if something bad happens from this. So, okay. He has morals is he a guy who just doesn't believe in privacy believes that you know well i i care about ethics and harming people but i think that privacy is overrated but that doesn't seem to be true either because i mean the points of the movies when he in the movie when he displays the most emotion is these kind of rare funny shoes in the other foot moments when he finds someone surveilling or recording him um there's kind of a, a light moment at the beginning of the movie when it's his birthday and he finds out that his building manager looked at one of his birthday cards and he gets very very worried about the prospect of someone seeing that he's, you know, what was like 47 years old. 44, right. 44. Although then he lies to his girlfriend. Yeah, later. that's right. He tells her he's she 40. Says, oh, what, what, how old are you? He says, oh, 42. Yeah. yeah. He won't <laughs> even tell her his age. Well, maybe, maybe that's why he needs to keep it secret. Um, he's got a whole scam going. Um, but yeah, so there's that. And then there's this really great scene halfway through when he, you know, he's with his little wiretap buddies having their cool wiretap hanging out in his, um, his cage. <laughs> His his very fun party pad, and you know he and his one of his sort of friends colleagues reveals that when he gave him a pen earlier, it was actually a bug, and that he's been recording him, and he kind of you know freaks out and promptly ends the fun party in his mesh cage. Um, so I mean, this is a guy who clearly understands that privacy is important, um, and understands that you know harming people is important, but for some reason, doesn't seem to really have qualms about doing it all the time, which I just, it's really interesting. I don't think it makes him an unbelievable character, but I do think it makes him, you know, a, a bit of a contradictory and a hypocritical character. Yeah. I think the, the scene, the scene Jake mentions is pivotal here, um, right? We've seen Harry as a guy so sort of paranoid of surveillance, right? That he, um, he has this, uh, a woman that he's been seeing that he, later admits to, to being in love with, um, to someone else. Uh, but he, you know, hadn't told her it was his birthday until the day. Uh, he won't tell her, uh, where, you know, what he does for his work. Uh, he won't really tell her anything about him. you do wonder what they talk about or what, how they're really, <laughs> he won't even got started. He won't take off his uh, ugly raincoat around her, even though he's he like in his, her apartment uh, for an hour lying in bed with her. <laughs> yeah. So, so this, is, this person is, um, you know, incredibly, uh, uh, you know, st stunted emotionally way. He's so paranoid about surveillance that he's kind of completely incapable of any form of intimacy. And then the one moment where we actually see him in this sort of party conversation, maybe after a drink or two to start, uh, opening up a little to someone uh, and talking, uh, to another woman about his, his real feelings for this, uh, this, this person he's supposedly in a relationship with. Um, <laughs> he's sort of immediately punished. He is immediately punished by having that disclosure, that intimacy, um, exposed by being recorded and mocked. Um, but his lack it, of it, due diligence goes even further than that, because you're right. He explodes. He tells everybody to get out. And the, the woman who's there to seduce him stays. And so the one agent who has been sent to penetrate him in order to steal the tape 
so that she can give it to the director from whom he has kept it back after realizing uh, his own internal conflicts. He doesn't even suspect that she is an enemy agent who is seducing him, a time-honored Mata Harry kind of trope. Classic. Uh, in intelligence. <laughs> uh, and he wakes up to find he's been head. So he, and, and then, I don't, are we giving away the end of the movie? We know yeah, he never. Give it, <laughs> give it away. It's been, a, it's been never, out for long enough. <laughs> yeah, it's been out for uh, decades. Uh, he never is able to defend himself, protect himself uh, through appropriate uh, 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 means and and suspicions. Uh, and I think that's in part because I don't know that he's hypocritical. Uh, I, 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 I think he is so convinced through how good he has been at his craft that he is impenetrable and he has mistakes offense. He mistakes offense for an assumption of defense. Um, and that's why he just goes crazy when, when I'm literally, literally he explodes. Um, <laughs> Uh, but but also don't minimize the degree to which he has spent his life. And in my, I have to say, I just wrote my best book called Mobius, a memoir about the life of an intelligence professional, and it is getting uh, great reviews because, as I quoted Clapper, I told the least untruthful things in that book that I could. And rationalization is a necessary part of being in a profession that compels you to qualify your conscience again and again by compartmenting it and separating it from from your work and in that way uh which mobius i think shows clearly uh it's every man mobius has been called every man because it's the degree to which we all do this we we all uh you know uh nietzsche said uh autobiography is untrustworthy because pride uh, and truth-telling war and pride always wins. Uh, we are literally in, incapable of being 100% disclosed, all hearts are open, all desires known. No, we don't want that. Nobody wants that completely. We want almost everything out there. And to go back to the clergy, uh, I learned to share selectively the details from my life. And a clergy woman said to me the other day, the difference is, other people, I'm authentic to the degree that I choose what to share. The people who come to see me for counseling have to share everything, or I, I can't be of value to them. Uh, so he's, he's hypocritical, but in a way that the human race, uh, which it is, arguably, <laughs> uh, is, 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 is hypocritical. There's, there's a sort of fantastically telling moment in that, in that confession scene. Uh, where you know, he's obviously feeling very guilty about the possibility of this uh, recording he's made of this this young couple seemingly talking about an actually talking about an affair um, will will get one of them or both of them harmed, uh, and is acknowledging in confession that this has happened before. Yeah, we learn more details later, but the uh, previous surveillance job he did um, resulted in uh, people he had, people getting killed, and uh, the way he phrases it is, "This has happened to me before." So, like the consequences of his actions, the fact that people died as a result of his work, and in that case, you know, pretty indirectly, maybe he shouldn't have been able to foresee that. But, um, but the, the, this consequence of his work that other people were harmed is something that happened to him, because now he feels bad about it. So he's sort of the victim, um, because look how like, how I have to suffer now. Um, not look at the, the poor people, um, which I think is a, a pretty you know not limited to surveillance, a pretty sort of universal. Uh, human traits, not a very pretty one, but that, that, um, uh, this, this, you know, why do you make me hurt you, uh, uh sort of impulse, uh, that is, I think this is the source of a lot of, a lot of, uh, human evil. Um, so, you know, Natalie's initial framing of this was about surveillance and power. I think in a way, this is the, 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 the best, very short encapsulation of this, uh, is just, a, uh, on the way to the party scene we mentioned earlier, um, there's a group coming from a surveillance convention to Harry's wonderful Faraday caged office. Uh, and there's this older man driving and a kind of young teenager and a speedster comes up and is sort of zooming by. Uh, and so the, this older driver is kind of 
humiliated and emasculated by the the you know the younger and more virile teenager with the 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 stronger muscle car and so he calls up uh, immediately a, a cop friend on a radio uh and runs the license plate and then zooms up next to the to the younger guy in, in, in the muscle car uh, and starts rattling off his name and his address and his height and weight. Um, <laughs> and the guy's not creepy of, at all know, <laughs> shocked by this, but so, right. Yeah. He's sort of, he's, he's been emasculated and now he reasserts his dominance by saying, well, but I know you. And so I, you know, I'm the one in power because you might be faster and younger and, you know, still able to, uh, to perform in bed, but I, have the information and so you're subordinate because knowledge is power <laughs> well but what you're describing also is business intelligence as it has universally come uh to have a place uh i don't think anyone operates a business without psyching out as best they can through legitimate open source and some illegitimate and i'm going to make a slight confession here uh someone many years ago came to me with a proposal for a joint business and there was just some red flag. I, I didn't trust this person. And I went to a friend of mine uh, who was a, a police officer. And I said, I don't know about, he says, well, let me, let, me, let me see what I can find out. And he went and ran that person's name through the computer and came back with a long, long list of uh, fraudulent acts and checks uh, passed, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that person never knew why I called up and I said, I really appreciate your proposal. Thank you very much. But I just don't have time to get into another business now, so I'm going to have to pass. But it's using the secret knowledge you get mm -hmm. on behalf of your own ulterior agenda uh, that, that, that makes it powerful. And I think, uh, you know, go ahead. So I was going to, you know, I think, I think, um, you may not appreciate how sort of common. That is so maybe not, you know, in, in, in actually in intelligence, I think it's actually probably much more strictly regulated in a sense. So, you know, you're, you're actually more likely to be ultimately punished for, you know, strictly personal misuse of like an NSA system. Um, but not I, I don't if know you're if careful. How, how, <laughs> well, it's true, but it's, it's a little bit stricter there, um, we hope. Um, I don't know how common it is for sort of employees and cops to, um, uh, to, make personal use of those kinds of systems. And, and it's sort of winked at. Um, and, you know, if you ever have, I mean, the way to discover this is go through a bad divorce with a cop and you'll yeah. find out, I think, quickly. <laughs> well, uh, at least from, from you know, the well, experience don't, of the Don't forget, uh, there was a, a moment in the director's office of uh, the NSA when the person responsible for liaising with the Brits, with whom we have a quote-unquote special relationship, was saying we needed to treat them differently because they were our, our friends and allies. And the assistant uh, deputy director of SIGINT uh, spoke up and he said, <clears throat> excuse me, we have no friends. We have no allies. We only have targets. And everyone agreed. Uh, that's the nature of the game. Uh, the expression of outrage by the Germans and the French, oh, you're surveilling our leaders. Everybody surveils everybody. That's the kind of world we've created and that creates layers of subterfuge and deception layered on top of what people think they're getting, just like Harry, Harry Call thought he knew what he was hearing, uh, and, and he didn't. And part of the great game is, is layer upon layer upon layer of deceptive practice, of, of which the poster child for where it can take you is James Jesus Angleton, uh, who was so wounded. By the Kim Philby episode, with whom he had shared so much that number one, he burned all their conversations, which was illegal, but that wasn't uncommon. And he was never the same. He became so paranoid that he became convinced every mole he uncovered in the CIA was for him to find to protect the mole at a higher level. And I wrote an essay called Why We Were All Going a Little Crazy and said <laughs> we were all becoming necessary counterintelligence agents just in order to find out what's true. In the world, of which we now all understand through social media, layers, deception upon deception upon deception, and embeds triggers to collect the herd in a stampede that makes it oblivious to truth, critical thinking, uh, and, and the ultimate goal of these values we seem to share in this podcast uh, as fundamental to our humanity and to our body politic. Uh, so this is not trivial stuff. and, and uh, I was struck watching the conversation again at what just a wonderful movie 
wonderful movie it was. But don't forget that in this time, 60s and 70s, we, we had the parallax view about the Robert Kennedy assassination. We had Chinatown. We had all the president's men. We, we had uh, a whole range of paranoid movies, and they weren't paranoid. We, we speak in the security world of appropriate paranoia. Uh, you better be aware that there are people who want to know what you're doing for a variety of reasons, economic, psychological, political, and, and, and other. And so knowing that's the world we live in, how do we live a normal, quote unquote, life? Um, see, and I think we're all ambivalent toward Harry Call. Um, I don't condemn him, but I, I understand what he did. Of course, I understand what he did uh, be, because he wanted to be one leg up on the rest of humanity by having this control and this power. And a lot of people I know went into the intelligence community. It's a tremendous rush to become part of an elite, which is empowered to break the laws of every country except our own. At least that was until 9-11, at which point the law was changed to allow us to break our own laws as well, because we rewrote the laws to make uh, warrantless surveillance okay, and then we rewrote the courts to approve those laws. And it, it's not a Republican or, you know, I used to say Obama is more Bush than Bush. Uh, he just took it even further. Of necessity, in the world in which they live, where defending at all costs is the name of the game. So we've kind of hinted at this, but I'm I'm curious if we could talk about what types of surveillance were going on when this film came out. So like I'm I doubt the general public was like acutely aware of how they were or any types of surveillance that were going on, like by the government, and then also the the type of paranoia that was going on about surveillance. Because I think watching this film today versus watching it back in the seventies was looked at like very, very differently by the audience because like, I, I mean, maybe this is by the nature of, you know, where I work and that kind of stuff. I'm like acutely aware of everything that, everything that is getting watched. Um, but I'm kind of curious on like the dichotomy of like the two viewing experiences from what was actually happening during those time periods. But I I would question that. I mean, you know, this, this movie is coming out, you know, effectively on the, on the heels of the, of the church committee, uh, report. Um, 1978 is the year FISA was finally passed in, in response to that. So, um, probably, you know, as this movie is coming out, the general public is, um, you know, as, as conscious of surveillance as an issue as, as, you know, they had been at any time, you know, between, between then and, uh, the, the Snowden revelations probably. So, uh, you know, this is a topic that was that was on people's minds. So when you have that conversation at the party between uh, what is his name, Bernie and and Harry, or Harry sort of boastfully says, "Well, you know, I'll have you know, I I wiretapped a major party's uh, presidential candidate, and I, I you know I don't want to say which party, but he lost. Uh, <laughs> I guess you could say I chose the president. Um, and you know, this is played off as this kind of this this buffoon boasting." But, uh, you know, this is also at a time when the public was discovering that, in fact, the president of the United States had, uh, you know, wiretaps, his political adversaries, uh, had gained intelligence about uh, opposing campaigns through, uh, illegal use of surveillance and, uh, uh infiltration. And, um, so, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, then is now, are people necessarily aware of the nitty gritty details of every, you know, in the way that um, someone who does this stuff for a living is, you know, but uh, I, I think it was, this is a timely film and this is uh, a, a period when maybe for the first time in American history, the wider public was becoming aware of the extent of, uh, of surveillance and of its potential for abuse after a long time when not just the public, but members of Congress for you know, many, many years had had the attitude that, you know, there are things that we need to do for national security, and I just assume not know about them. Um, and, you know, then realizing the, the cost of not wanting to know. But Natalie, I, I think this is also where our generational differences may be showing up, because you didn't live through Vietnam. You didn't live through the riots. Uh, I tried to tell somebody younger what it was really like to have 40 cities, 
40, not just Minneapolis, where I live, 40 cities burning. Uh, the assassinations, Martin Luther King, John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Medgar Evers, on and on. Uh, we And we learned and we knew deeply that J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI was being used illegally to surveil, uh, for example, Martin Luther King Jr. by bugging him everywhere he went. And Vietnam, uh, all Vietnam protesters were targets of both legal and illegal surveillance because anyone who opposed the war in Vietnam was considered uh, by those people uh, not to be patriotic in support of our troops, et cetera. Uh, so uh, the other thing I, I walked around, I picketed HUAC. Uh, listeners may not know that refers to the House on American Activities Committee. I remember walking around the building in Chicago when I was a teenager with other picketers opposing what HUAC was doing. And the FBI was standing there taking films. Uh, of all of us who were in, in that uh, in that circle. Now, uh, so we could be identified, but now we know you can identify people by their gait, by their vocal tonality, by the uh, pace of their keyboarding, uh, by their face faces, by every signal we give in normal life to who we are. It's out there. And it can be databased and linked and mined. Uh, so we... Anonymity is a very, very tough nut to crack the, the, these days. But I, I think depending on whether you are a minority then uh, and had suffered as a result of government oppression, uh, that would determine the degree to which you are conscious of, of what, what could be done. And, and the other thing is I had a friend at CIA said, anything you can learn, Richard, is about 20 years after we've done it. And uh, I noticed when I read uh, the Chinese book, We've Been Harmonized, that he referred to things as breakthrough journalism that I was told by the Secret Service when they had us down for Dog and Pony show in Chicago when Obama was going to give his speech in Grant Park. They showed us what kind of surveillance they had, how many cameras linked, uh, public and private in the city, how infrared could detect a frogman coming in at Navy Pier, how any anomalous traffic movement was immediately flagged the license plate photographed and the car handed off from camera to camera as it went across the city uh, because ibm and northrop grumman had done a beautiful ai front end this is when obama was about to give a speech and on and on i could give more examples so what they were doing then uh compared to what can be done now uh it's just who is they yeah. <laughs> you do remind me of a, just a wonderful little story. Um, uh, I, another uh, pop and lot guest, uh, Jesse Walker from Reason Magazine, with whom uh, we did an episode a little a little while ago about John Carpenter's They Live, uh, wrote a wonderful uh, book called The United States of, of Paranoia um, about the paranoid style and conspiracy theories. And uh, one anecdote he tells is, uh, and I think I remember details here is that this is in the, in the, in the, in the days of COINTELPRO, uh, the FBI's, uh, a highly illegal, uh, anti-domestic dissent infiltration, uh, program, uh, there was, uh, a particular activist they wanted to try and discredit. And they realized that the method that they decided, the method they wanted to use was they were going to plant this non-functional, obviously fake, uh, to anyone with any kind of technical savvy surveillance device at the guy's house so that he would discover it, uh, become paranoid, show it to his activist friends. They would say this is obviously fake um, and think he had planted it himself. And so he would be discredited and become paranoid, um, which is <laughs> very apt for, for a film like The Conversation where we watched this happen to Harry Cole. But uh, there was some internal debate over whether this target was important enough to take this rather extreme step of, you know, essentially running this psychological operation around, uh, against him. So they placed him under real surveillance in order to determine whether he was worth putting under fake surveillance. <laughs> so the real surveillance was a prelude to this sort of phony surveillance that was meant to, to, to make him paranoid and, and make him seem crazy, um, which seems like a kind of a perfect encapsulation of some of the uh, the themes we see in, in in this film, both the power of of surveillance, but also the power of making people paranoid about surveillance. And that's also standard operating procedure, right? 
Sure. I, I mean, that's what you do. How, you can't expend your energy everywhere to surveil everyone at that level of granularity and to run operations against them unless they merit it. It's, it's just not worth it. You don't do it for fun. You have too many real targets you need to uh, take down is, is the point of view of the people who do that sort of work. It is really interesting to think about kind of watching this as, you know, like a almost 50 year old film and sort of what it reflects then versus today. I mean, I um, well, I used to have in my office back when we worked out of offices, um, a <laughs> magazine cover I hung that, you know, was said like the the headline on the cover was, is privacy dead? And it was like a little cartoon of all these different recording devices and microphones and things. Um, and it's a news we cover from the mid seventies, um, which, you know, for me is always kind of a pleasant reminder whenever people talk about like, Oh my God, Google and Facebook and no one has privacy anymore that, you know, this, this is not actually a, a new phenomenon. It sort of is a sort of recurring worry we have again and again and again. Um, and, you know, I, I do think like if, if Harry call was around today, I mean, yeah, he wouldn't be working with microphones. He'd, he'd probably be working at Clearview AI, hawking facial recognition or, at, you know, Pim Eyes hawking, you know, sketchy, like, you know, hey, you can take a picture of someone on your phone at a bar and then you'll know every detail about their life the way you would, you know, speeding by the guy in the car. Um, you know, and I, I think it, it, it it's kind of interesting to think about in that sense of like, you know, something like, you know, we'll call like Google stalking before like a date is like, I think very seen as commonly seen as socially acceptable. Like, yeah, I might want to get a little <laughs> information about a person, like where they work, are they actually who they say that their name is who they say it is. But the notion of I'm going to like scrape every photo of this person ever that's existed throughout their life is I think rightfully seen as very dangerous and creepy. Um, there is kind of that. Yeah. No, when you see it all, i up just like in the face of shifting technology, we have shifting, but I think pretty stable norms of personal privacy um, and there are always going to be efforts, you know, like a Harry Call or like a Clearview AI, where people just say, oh, well, I can make a profit on kind of cutting along the edges of that. Jake, you sort of leaned into the next question that I was curious about, which is um, we spent a lot of time discussing the context of this film and what it meant to view it then as opposed to now. Sort of looking at it from a different angle, what would it mean to make this film now as opposed to then? If you were to take this story, this plot, this situation that Call gets put into now, what would that mean? What would the technology look like? What would his moral dilemma sort of be different? How? how what kind of operator would he be? And what would the people that he's observing be existing in how how would they function it, it seems like it could be a very different film made today and how would it be different and how would it be the same we should say there there is there is sort of a sequel from the 90s there was a will smith and gene hackman movie called enemy of the state in which um Gene Hackman plays a kind of retired or former surveillance operative he's not called harry call in that movie but uh, you see his <laughs> office at one point and it's the same Faraday cage office and so it's very obviously kind of an homage and um you know i guess you can if you want to make it your head cannon you can say ah this is what happened to carrie call years later uh you know having changed his name um but sorry jake go ahead no, I, I also i totally do think of that as a canon for that movie i think he is harry call in enemy of the state um i think like kind of scary like there, there's so many ways you could go about it now um I mean, because there's, you know, I, again, like, I don't think privacy is dead now in a way it was in the 70s, but I do think that there are a lot of more like vectors for, you know, for surveillance. I mean, he could still be kind of like a wiretapper, but do it digitally. He could be, a, you know, a, probably like the easiest way would just have it, like the character be a hacker and have someone be, you know, grabbing people's computers and snooping on their emails and things um, and, you know, be reading people's text messages. Um, I mean, or, you know, kind of going in the vein of he's, that this is sort of like a, you know, slightly off book sort of business model, but that still has a business community. I could see, you know, someone like this being, you know, someone who works for one of those apps that basically is like a stalker app for like, Hey, get this installed on your partner's phone. And now you can track them everywhere and read their texts and things like that. I mean, that to me feels most reminiscent of what he's doing of like, you know, it, it's very shady. It's very, I think unethical. Um, there, but he kind of 
you know, all, all these people at this, you know, convention that they do, I think they kind of think of themselves as like basically door to door salesmen who are doing the same thing as someone in like a, you know, a, a Best Buy and like here, buy this TV, buy this, <laughs> you know, buy this mic so you can snoop on your, your wife or your girlfriend. Um, well, it's a huge business. Yeah. Uh, and the major uh, Western countries, which might claim moral superiority, uh, export all of the technologies that do this. And I know people who do that <clears throat> to the most nefarious actors in the world who use the technology to surveil, arrest, torture, and kill uh, people who oppose their state power. That's just a fact. So it's a ubiquitous context. And you can't just isolate one or two things. You get their email. You're, you're thinking too small. Because the panspectron is real. Uh, I did a talk called When Privacy Goes Poof, Why It's Gone and Never Coming Back. And a key element of that talk was the notion of individual no longer holds. It's a 20th century, 19th century, 18th century construction, an emergent property of the technologies that existed then. And that other people who do this right and do it on the scale necessary, uh, they know us all better than we know ourselves. <clears throat> and we live inside and behind a self-conception, which is not what others who have done this work can see when they look at us, because they can mine those patterns for understanding who we are and what we are likely to do. Uh, as somebody at MIT said, actually, I think it was about 20 years ago, we don't see real people. We see millions of dots moving around on a screen that occasionally touch one another. We are data points, and we are data points uh, in which other data points have been aggregated, and the relationship, I'll never forget uh, Jeff Jonas, who did it for casinos first, and then the CIA came to him, and it was relationship awareness. At that time, he was uh, just starting, and they were out to 13 degrees of separation in relationships, and now that we can do that with genetics, uh, because there are wonderful stories about we caught this one, uh, the serial killer because he was related to his third cousin who was, uh, you know, people don't live as if the power of these technologies are in fact ubiquitous. And I, I think that's a, a major problem. And when they learn bits and pieces, that's where conspiracy theories come from. It's saying six or eight stars and saying, oh, it's a bear or a lion, when in fact it's a goat. And that turns us into the goat because in their fear and cognitive dissonance, people project prematurely uh, a gestalt upon uh, inadequate points of data for the for the pattern they want to see. And then when they're collected into a herd, which gives them a feeling of self-confidence and at least some security, then we see it all over the internet now. Uh, so we're up against some really tough problems of which the key one is that we do not have systems of governance for a digital society. And that's a, a an interesting sort of reading of this because I think you could read that in the conversation too that the real flaw is not or, or the sort of the er that call goes into his his sort of homartia is not the collection of the data like that has its own sort of things that it's tied into but it's the mis misinterpretation of what he then gathers and that becomes his sort of fall from grace in this sort of greek tragic way is the way he misinterprets it and the, the consequences of that he's meticulously gathered so much information he has you know the whole the whole conversation he's got photographs of the people he thinks he understands what they were talking about but the slight difference in emphasis in one word in a sentence completely changes the meaning. So he's totally misunderstood. Uh, they, the sentence, you know, again, I hope you've seen the movie before I say this, but the, you know, the couple says, um, you know, as he hears it originally, well, he'd kill us if he got the chance. But then as they tweak the audio, he realizes it's he'd kill us if he had the chance, as in, you know, so we should feel okay about killing him. The apparent victims are actually the, the, the perpetrators. Um, but it's a way of showing, God, you think you know everything, but this tiny bit of nuance um, reverses everything. You can think you know everything, um, but in fact, you've misunderstood. Um, it reminds me, it was there was a group of um, people who had uh, were living in the U.S. who had trained in uh, with the Taliban in Afghanistan, 
uh, who were under surveillance quite appropriately, um, given that they'd done this, but they eventually um, sort of swooped in and arrested them because they overheard a phone conversation. I think this was the Lackawanna 6, uh, where they were talking about uh, looking forward to a big meal at, a, at the wedding that was coming up. And a wedding is, of course, a, a very popular Al-Qaeda code for a terror attack. And so they go, okay, it's time to wrap up the, the operation. We're going to bring these guys in. Um, and it turned out they were actually talking about a real a real wedding. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a reminder of sort of the illusion of, of, of omniscience that you, you may think you have everything external, but well, at least in that era, um, you know, you don't yet have access to the interiority of, of, of the target's mind and what those, uh, those external communications may signify to the, to the parties. Um, you know, maybe that's changing gradually. Um, I will say, I think, you know, it would be it would it, very hard to do a great movie about surveillance now. I'm still hoping one will come out, but even more recent, you know, you think of the 2006 film, The Lives of Others, which I think is one of the best surveillance movies ever made up with the conversation, but it's about East Germany in the eighties. Um, and I think you know, that's, that's partly down to the limitations of film. Um, you know, you can do a guy in a garret with headphones on listening to a conversation. You can do uh, a telephoto lens, you know, very naturally lends itself to film, um, right? So the, the the voyeuristic medium of film and the um, the surveillance lens mesh together very nicely. But all right, if you wanted to t- depict cinematically the idea that, well, by aggregating information from your web browsing history and metadata from your cell phone and your GPS logs and correlating that with a pattern analysis of other people with similar GPS fingerprints and who, you know... Um, that's hard to even explain, let alone film compellingly. Um, right. It, it is, it is hard to make the, right, the much more comprehensive reality of contemporary surveillance capabilities, um, comprehensible, um, let alone, you know, sort of filmable, legible in a visual medium. Right. And you're pointing toward an important point, I think, which is that the conversation is about the technology in part. But what you're pointing toward today is it's not about the technology. It's about the layers of self-understanding and relationship to the uh, geopolitical structures that, that we've built. And a slide to the movie Blow Up, uh, which uh, Coppola said, yes, he, he, he was influenced by it. It wasn't identical, but uh, someone thought they photographed something and spent their life blowing up the picture. And the last scene in Blow Up by Antonioni uh it is the life we all live today. Uh, these clowns kept coming by in a car through the movie. And at the end, he comes upon the clowns pretending to play tennis. They're inside a court and they have no rackets and no balls, but they're running back and forth as if they are miming a tennis game. And one hits the ball over the fence and comes to the fence and puts out their hand for the ball. And what confronts the uh, protagonist is, am I going to play the game or not? And he walks over, picks up the imaginary ball, throws it back. They say thank you, and the game resumes. And that is the degree of ambiguity about our own context, uh, to which I think you're 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 pointing. So the the story today is about what it does to us. I, I say I speak about the human in the machine, the impacts of these technologies and surveillance and intelligence and security on us as human beings. And I can tell you that a common thing I hear from audiences is, I don't want to know that. I don't want to live in that world. Uh, That's your world. You stay there. Uh, I prefer to believe you're lying to me, in a sec. I can't handle it. And and the truth is, we can't handle the truth, as Jack Nicholson uh, famously said. It's a tough one. I think one of of the the best, the three best scenes in the conversation, there's the opening the opening sequence of, of the spying on the crowd, the famous final scene where kind of gripped by paranoia, Harry is sort of sitting with his saxophone in the remains of his demolished apartment, having torn it to shreds. Not knowing um, that the bug is uh, in the saxophone. <laughs> looking for the bug. But as he's metaphorically, he sort of destroyed his, 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 his most intimate space you know, metaphorically, um, out of paranoia. So that's a kind of right, a microcosm for his whole character. But also the the scene um, at the hotel, 
where he again is spying and misapprehends. He thinks he's observed the 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 murder of the young woman that he was spying on earlier. Actually, he's he's sort of uh, dimly observed the murder of her husband. But he goes into the hotel room afterwards. Um, looking for evidence of what he's seen. And it's this wonderfully surreal moment because we sort of, we sort of wonder how much of what we're seeing is real or whether we're like maybe witnessing some kind of psychotic break on, on Harry's part because he walks in and the bathroom is, the, 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 the place is spotless. And he goes into the bathroom and Slavoj Žižek points out uh, in his wonderful video essay, uh, Pervert's Guide to Cinema, um, that this is kind of in, 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 in a certain dialogue with Psycho because he looks at the, the shower and so slides back the shower curtain. And we think then we're finally going to see the horror and know there's nothing. Um, and, you know, he, he runs his finger around the, the, the drain looking for blood, which in, in psycho, as we see the blood run into the drain and it pans into the eye of the corpse, it's not there. And then he looks to the toilet and he flushes the toilet. And this is the surreal part where you're like, is this really happening for a second? Um, and the toilet starts just overflowing with blood. They've stuffed all the bloody rags, all the evidence of the murder into the toilet. And now it's just gushing back up bleeding. Um, and he reacts with recoils in horror and kind of, um, backs away from this. Uh, and you know, again, it's maybe a little heavy handed metaphor here, but Harry throughout the film has been saying, look, I just want the tapes. I don't care what they're talking about. I don't care what the use is made of it. That's not my department. Um, I, you know, I, I take the tapes and this is basically, this is shit I flush away. This is waste material, um, that I now wash my hands of. And then in that bathroom scene, this lovely, sterile, clean bathroom, suddenly, uh, you know, everything that's been flushed away comes bubbling back up. The blood comes pouring out onto the floor uh, and onto his shoes and the thing you thought you'd flushed away is still with you it's coming back um you know your bathroom isn't so sterile anymore uh, it turns out you can't wash your hands that easily and now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home this is locked in julian we'll go ahead and start with you uh let's see the last uh television thing I binged was Umbrella Academy, which is a, a lovely sort of post post superhero show, I suppose. It's about a kind of dysfunctional family of powered individuals who were kind of superheroes as kids and teenagers and now have um, kind of moved on and are reunited by the, the death of their uh, mentor figure uh, and and all uh, kind of broken child star types. Um, novel I read, uh, I just read, uh, CJ Cherry, or I'm reading, uh, CJ Cherry's, uh, novel, uh, Down Below Station, which is at least so far about a, a kind of conflict between, uh, Earth-based humanity and its, uh, far-flung, uh, uh, descendants who have moved out to the stars. And then, uh, also reading-wise, I guess I, I've been sort of rereading the, uh, manuals for the, Call of Cthulhu campaign, Masks of Nyarlathotep. Uh, uh, before the pandemic started, I had been running for some, mostly some journalist friends of mine, uh, uh, Call of Cthulhu role-playing adventures. We had done a whole bunch of sessions. We had done a kind of prologue and were, you know, ready to start the, probably the most sort of famous campaign in this role-playing universe, Master Nyarla Hotep, which is this huge epic adventure. Uh, and then the, sort of the pandemic started. So of course we didn't do it. And I didn't really want to do it over Zoom. Um, I, I, you know, I, I prefer to be in person where you can act things out and you can actually give people, uh, you know, fake newspapers and, and physical things that they can look at and study. And, um, uh, but now everyone's vaccinated and things are opening up again. So I'm looking forward to being able to restart and run, run Master of Nyarla Hotep. Um, okay, I'll hit you a few. Um, books. I just finished, uh, The Lies of Locke Lamora. It's like a fantasy book from about, I guess, like 15 years now. That's a short series. Um, really, really good. So love that a lot. Recommend. Um, movies. I have been watching all the Batman movies on HBO. Very fun. Well, some of them are very fun. Some are not. Um, but kind of looking at kind of just the range of Batman movies is, is pretty good. And the Nolan ones still hold up incredibly well. And then, um, I'll give a game I've been playing. Um, they just released a kind of remastered version of Mass Effect. That's like classic video game series. Um, so I've been playing through that steadily and going through all the adventures of Commander Shepard and 
it's actually been kind of weirdly like resonant of, you know, I, I never kind of took much from this sort of idea of like the Reapers, this like galaxy killing impending doom race of robots and sort of this incompetent galactic government that keeps throughout the series, ignoring them. And now kind of in playing this game in like post pandemic COVID world, I, I just, I keep seeing the Reapers as COVID and just like this, you know, council of all these aliens being like, ah, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. It's just like, oh man, this, this feels very real in a way that it did not before. And it makes me wonder kind of how much we're going to sort of see COVID and the government's responses and society's responses to it in, you know, lots of fiction in ways we didn't necessarily intend before. I read a lot of nonfiction. I've been reading a lot of McIntyre. Uh, just finished uh, uh, Spy Among Friends, his extraordinarily good book on, on uh, Kim Kilby. I, I do read uh, uh, Charles McCary, I think, is one of the best spy novelists uh, we've got. He's pretty good. Um, I read James Lee Burke. Uh, I've read dozens of James Lee Burke books because when he's good, he's getting old. I shouldn't say that, but he is. And his prose style is degrading into an imitation of his former excellence. But he's tremendous at his best. Beautiful, beautiful descriptions of the West and of Louisiana. Uh, so I, I like reading him for my guilty pleasure. And I have to admit, I'm working on my second, just starting another book about Mobius. Um, and I'm, I'm thrilled. The reviews for Mobius have been mostly from CIA, NSA people. They, they, they're they over the top enthusiastic because they tell me that um, I nailed it. And one said that I'd created a character who was a George Smiley for our time, uh, which is a great compliment from a former NSA professional uh, because George Smiley is the great character created by Jean Le Carré. And so uh, my interests are diverse and I read a lot and I go to a lot of stuff online, uh, essays and so on. Uh, and and read uh, James Lee Burke for pleasure. For me, so we've been really in the pop and lock gear lately. So the most recent book I read was 1984. Um, and then for movies, uh, me and my housemates have been on like a horror kick um, and someone hadn't seen Silence of the Lambs. So we had to do Silence of the Lambs because um, that's that's a classic. So we'd started with that. And um, one of my other housemates had never seen um, any of the Conjuring movies. So we started, we watched the first one and the second one thus far. I don't know if we're going to do like the whole Conjuring universe, which is like a thing now. Um, but that's kind of, that's what we've been doing for fun on the side. Um, and the book I'm reading now is Fahrenheit 451 for the next Pop and Lock recording. So kind of in between, I know spoilers, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's normally I read, uh, historical fiction from like world war ii era so it's been a nice break from that for now so uh i i've been watching my wife play mass effect the legendary edition <laughs> actually jake so um she she's been playing that and uh we've also been trading off been playing uh assassin's creed odyssey not the not valhalla not the the viking one that's the new one but odyssey reading wise i finally i have been curious and picked up stephen king's uh, the Dark Tower series before. I had never read any of it, so I just finished The Gunslinger, the first instance in that, which is, a re if you don't know anything about it, is a really fun Wild West meets epic fantasy Arthurian legend, uh, but make it cowboys in the future of another dimension. It's wild. It's Stephen King taking everything and throwing it at the wall. <laughs> um, it's one of my all-time favorite uh, series. It's so good. It's really good. I really like it. Um, and it's very well written for as wacky as it sounds. Do you know, so he actually significantly changed the ending of the first book, though. So if you're reading, okay, you, you well, might I'll be reading to, the updated version, which I think is actually I, I think I might be. I'll have to double check because if not, I'll just go back and reread it. Um, Alternate ending. <laughs> a series I looked at the scale of and thought, I'm going to read the Wikipedia entry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I got the, the bundled version, so I think it has like seven yeah. books in it or something. I've only read the first yeah, he, one so he far. He actually finished the seven book series. Shots fire, George R. R. Martin. <laughs> we'll see how far I get into it before I have to put it down. But I did like the first book a lot. Um, I also just finished uh, a great book of short stories uh, called Friday Black by Nanakwame Ajay Brenya. 
specifically the last story in that collection called Through the Flash, which is about this weird and twisted sort of hyper-violent Groundhog Day scenario where everyone in society relives the same day over and over again following like a nuclear explosion. Um, it is wild and weird, but like really beautiful too, uh, and, and super cool and like actiony. Um, and uh, a great full book that everyone could read if you don't want fiction, you want something nonfiction, is Underland, A Deep Time Journey by Robert McFarlane, who has written books mostly, is sort of a nature writer, and has written about uh, like mountaineering and, and climbing and things like that. But this is about the world beneath our feet. So cave diving, spelunking, diving into glaciers and the catacombs of paris and where we bury nuclear waste um and kind of all the insane cool places that we walk above every day and what they mean so uh it's it's really eye-opening and makes you look at uh, everything in a new way when you're outside imagining all the stuff that's not just above you but below you thanks for listening as always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen as well. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by Natalie Dowzicki. We're a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. <laughs>